Hi, everybody. Welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest on Attendance Bias is Slade Somer of Brooklyn, New York. Slade is the editor-in-chief of The Recount, a news website that offers short video clips to catch you up on the most important news of the day. Slade reached out to me to be a guest on the podcast, and I was very excited to hear from him because once he reached out to me, he provided a real killer lineup of shows that he wanted to discuss, so I knew right away he was for real. After some back and forth, we settled on February 28th, 2003, Fish's legendary show at the Nassau Coliseum. And after about two minutes of talking with Slade, I felt instantly at ease. We both grew up on Long Island, we were introduced to Fish in a similar way, and we had been to several of the same shows. It really was a pleasure to speak to him. And over the course of this show, Slade and I discussed the overall feeling and trends of Fish in 2.0, whether or not anyone at this show really knew what Destiny Unbound was when they played it, and we share some great memories of the greatest head shop to ever exist, Prime Cuts in Rockville Center, New York. So let's get to it. Slade Somer and I discuss February 28th, 2003 at the Nassau Coliseum. Slade, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Attendance Bias. Thanks for having me. I have not been able to geek out about fish with anyone in real life in way too long. And uh, this this is a, a close second. Well, that's why I even started this website. I was getting stir crazy in quarantine. And when fish canceled their tour, I said, well, now who am I going to talk to? So <laughs> I'm calling my people and making them talk to me about fish. <laughs> it's a good strategy. Slade, you chose February 28th, 2003 at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale. That's a pretty high profile show. I definitely understand why you chose it. And we'll get into a little bit later about, you could tell us what it, what about it was so meaningful to you. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so you are currently the editor-in-chief of The Recount. Can you tell us a little bit about what The Recount is? Sure. Uh, the recount, we're about a year old. We are all politics, all video. And we're trying to show people um, what's happening in politics every day, right now, that you need to know, you need to see. Uh, we digest it. We take in basically every input in the world from cable news to C-SPAN to international channels to podcasts to YouTube uh, to Twitter and everything in between. And we digest it and spit it back out at you in uh, short videos uh, that you understand. Right. So it's, it's like a roll call of videos at the end of the day to recount the news. That's right. Okay, That's right. great. And so that's the, that's the present about the past, where did you grow up? Where are you from? And we'll get into fish from there. So uh, I grew up in Long Island, which is uh, a fish stronghold, mm -hmm. a, uh, a capital of in, in the fish <laughs> country, um, and went out to school in Chicago uh, when I was 18, which was 1997. So got to spend a few years seeing fish in the Midwest, which was nice. Uh, and then immediately moved back to New York City uh, in August 2001. Growing up on Long Island, how did fish first enter your life? Uh, probably the way that most uh, Jewish uh, fish fans <laughs> find it, which is summer, summer camp. camp. Uh, uh, how did I know? Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, summer camp was a place where your cool counselors always played music for you and you were, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever, um, you know, idolizing these counselors who were playing this music you'd never heard that. uh, And I think it was the summer of 93 I first heard Contact was the first song I ever heard. And for, you know, a 14-year-old, Contact is a perfect fish song. Sure. Whether it's like a six-year-old or a 14-year-old, Contact (laughs) is, and they played it at the show we're going to talk about today. That's right. That's right. So you hear Contact at summer camp. What do you do? Do you ask for more? Do you wait till you get home and then go to Sam Goody at the Roosevelt Field Mall? (laughs) (laughs) That is almost exactly (laughs) what happened. Um, There was definitely a store at the Roosevelt Field Mall. Uh, I lived a little closer to the Broadway Mall or Mm -hmm. the Big Island Mall um, in the old days. Um, And I probably picked up Rift, which came out shortly thereafter, um, if I'm not mistaken. And Rift was like a life changer. Um, and you know, I, I played the CD of Rift in my Walkman over and over and over again. Um, hoist, you know, I picked up hoist. I went back to, you know, everything. Um, and, and really, uh, you know, dove into the catalog. What was it on Rift that got into your soul? Because for me, it was a picture of Nectar. I heard it at summer camp on a field trip to the White Mountains. And I just, the day I got home, I actually went to Sam Goody at the Roosevelt Field Mall and nice. bought that album. And for me, it was Glide. That was the one that just sunk its hooks into me. And it's still my favorite song. Did you have a song like that, whether it was off Rift or Hoist or any album? Um, you know, I would say, again, at that age, like Sparkle really spoke to me. Sure. Um, you know, that that's a song that... Um, you know, I think musically is something that doesn't sound like the stuff that's on the radio um, and is, uh, you know, quintessential fish. And lyrically, it's, you know, ridiculous. And, you know, when you're trying to be ridiculous, like all teenagers, um, you know, Sparkle was a was a perfect, perfect song. Um, but that, you know, that album in general between Rift and Maze, um you know, it just, again, it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. And it was like, this is exactly what I, what I want to hear all the time. And then you throw in the lengthwise, you know, and then you get like, there was, there, there's almost something for everything, some, something for everyone on that album that, um, you know, I, I think really kind of lyrically and weirdly and musically spoke to me. Yeah. It's a versatile album. It's got a lot yeah, really, in it yeah. that appeals to a lot of different parts of any listener. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, you know, I quickly fell in love, but it wasn't until, you know, probably two or three years later that I got to see them live. That was my next question. When did you get to see them live? Six twenty-eight ninety-five, Jones Beach. The, it's funny. The thing that I remember most about that is they opened with Axel Part 2, which... 98 shows later, I've never heard again. Like the yeah. first fish song I've ever heard live, I've never heard it again. And I've seen Fish play 2,000 songs live, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like a live one came out on that Tuesday and then that show was on a Wednesday or a Thursday, but someone could check the calendar on that. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that a live one I picked up, I think, you know, on that day and said, this is, 
live music on a CD. Who who knew? <laughs> uh, and that that gumbo, I wore that gumbo out. The yeah. gumbo on uh, a live one, I think mm-hmm. I listened to nonstop. I'm curious about the atmosphere at Jones Beach or just going any crystallized memories because maybe aside from Madison Square Garden, having grown up on the South Shore of Long Island, I think I've seen my most live concerts at Jones Beach. And this was before they added that extra uh, mezzanine on top. It was a lot smaller. It felt a lot smaller. Do you remember what it was like being there? I I do. Um, I remember I went with my older brother, uh, who I was 16, he was 20. And the I know this sounds so cheesy, but, um, you know, the thing that I remember most about the atmosphere was it was the only show I've ever seen with my brother. Um, huh. and, and like, it was a cool bonding thing between like sure. a 20 year old and a 16 year old brother when you're in two different worlds. Like I was still in this high school world. He had graduated onto this college world. We didn't see each other very much after spending the first, you know, 14 years of my life, two feet from each other forever. Um, you know, so it was one of those kind of cool reparatory fraternal kind of things where I was like really just kind of happy to spend time with him. Um, and, uh, you know, otherwise I remember just being like super stoned and, you know, cause Jones beach is such a nice venue that like you're looking at the water, um, you know, the, the, it, it is small and intimate and we were all the way in the back. I do remember <laughs> that. Um, and you know, years later, you'd come to see fish from all angles, way in the back, super up front, off page side, off, you know, fish side, whatever it is. Um, and it was my first introduction and we were pretty far back. And I, I just remember being like, you know, when you're 16, you get, you know, a little two stone sometimes. Yep. Rookie uh, mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And I just remember like kind of running out of energy by the end of it. I remember like being tired and, and not, having that same visceral experience that you got, I don't know, years later when you, when you figured out how to fish. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I had a great time. I did not come home from that show saying like, I'm going to dedicate my life to this band. And last question I'll ask about getting into fish. I wouldn't have asked this question if you weren't from Long Island. So I, this is the true test. Did you go to prime cuts? All the time. Of course you did. All the time. I lived at Prime Cuts when I wasn't at college. I would come home, I would buy every tape they had in the catalog. Um, you know, for those of you who aren't for those of you who aren't there, I'm sorry to cut you off, but if you're not from Long Island and you're listening, Prime Cuts was a head shop uh, located in a town called Rockville Center for most of the time. It moved a little later, but it was in Rockville Center and not only was it a head shop, but if you went in the back, they had these binders that had set list p- pages of set lists and plastic sleeves. You wrote down the dates, brought it up front, and they would bring out the tapes for you. And they would only charge you the cost of a blank tape plus a dollar for the man hours it took to copy it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was unique in the way that I'm pretty sure they were the only people because shops would allow you to come in with blank tapes and record on their decks. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was the only place that I knew of, aside from like homemade B&T kind of stuff. Right, right. Uh, um, um, uh, B&P stuff, sorry. Um, you know, I, I think they were the only place like commercially where you could go in and buy like, you know, Maxell tapes that had the music already on them. Yeah, and I don't know if they had permission to do that or yeah, if they just it. did it. 
I doubt it. But then the internet came along and, and ruined that business. And yeah. the last I had heard of them, I think they were like selling in the lot of Acoustic Hookah. Wow, really? That, I, <laughs> I did not know sure. that. I'm pretty sure. Um, but that was um, a formative place. The fact that that existed in Long Island is also kind of part of the fish mythology for me uh, and how you know I got into them so much is you know, I would go, a friend would go on a different day, a friend would go on a different day. And back to your description for anyone listening at home who never got a chance, you know, the, the set list always rotated. Like it yeah. wasn't always the same tapes behind the counter. Um, and they got them in very quickly. So, you know, if there were a fall tour and I went home for Thanksgiving, I would immediately drive to, uh, to Prime Cuts and, you know, they would have stuff from the fall tour and, you know, and then you would just trade in and, you know, homemade, uh, homemade bootleg with your friends tapes from Prime Cuts. It was great. I mean, it's a great way to build a collection. It really was. And it got to the point, I was so addicted to fish that it got to the point where before I could even drive, my friends and I would walk to the Long Island Railroad Station, take the train about four stops over. We would even hide like and switch cars so the conductor wouldn't see us because we were only going four stops and we'd get out we'd walk to prime cuts get our tapes take the train back and then we'd immediately have these taping sessions or uh dubbing sessions really yeah that would go late into the night and then by the time i was taking driver's ed in high school and the teacher the driving teacher would ask where do you guys want to drive today we drive right to Prime Cuts, buy right a couple tapes, cuts. and listen to them during driving lessons. I will say just one more thing on this topic, and then we can jump in uh, to 228. I feel like the taping experience, the dubbing experience of, of dubbing your friend's tapes in real time and, and listening to it and, and having to write asterisks on the, uh, you know, on the... On the J cards. On the, yeah, exactly. Like, that to me is, is like why you really heard the nooks and crannies of all those old jams. Like what, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a CD guy or now a digital guy or whatever. Like I made the move to CDs. I made the move to digital. I'm not, you know, a guy who lives in the stone age. Um, but you know, the, the, the whole process of having to dub a tape for a friend or dubbing a friend's tape for yourself or whatever really, really made you pay attention to the music in a way that very few bands could say that of, which is, you know, I miss that experience. That's the only thing I'll say. I, I do miss that experience. All right. So looking into today's show that you chose February 28th, 2003 at the Nassau Coliseum, I'd love to hear about why specifically you chose it. But before we do that, let's take a look at where Fish was for this winter tour in February 2003. So the band was coming off their self-imposed hiatus and so this show was the second to last show of the 2003 winter tour, which would close the next night in Greensboro. The winter tour in February 2003 was widely considered and still is a very triumphant return for Fish after their hiatus. There were several standout shows and jams that have stood the test of time. So where were you in 2003 and led you to attending this show? So I was a 24-year-old living in New York City. Uh, I was in Manhattan. Um, I did go to the comeback show on, uh, on New Year's Oats 2. Um, and then they announced this tour for, um, you know, February 2003. And I was working for a guy who got it. So I took off the... 
Wednesday night, February 19th, and came back to town, I think, on the 23rd. So I went to Chicago on the 20th. Um, I went to those two Cincy shows, the 21st and 22nd. So I went back to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then took off Friday or worked a half a day on Friday and then went out to Long Island uh, for, for that night. And they have a really great history at the Nassau Coliseum. The Island Tour, of course, and those shows in 1999 that we brought up earlier. And this one, those are all winners. So I have to imagine the vibe is pretty high coming in here. Long Island is, is, a, is a great place for fish. The fans are, you know, both knowledgeable and fun and cool. And, you know, everyone's been listening to it for a long time. Welcoming of, of newcomers to the community. Um, and that 228 show was, was actually a prime example of like welcoming newcomers to the community. I went to that show with my, my best friend in the world who I have seen probably the most fish with and the guy who really fueled my, my fishdom uh, as a freshman in college, um, and, and a guy who, that was his first show, um, and it was his first ever show, and now he's seen, you know, probably close to 100 at this point, and the last show I ran into him at was that new, that Nassau Coliseum show from 2019, um, and uh, yeah, so I had the best of both worlds. I had, like, a total rookie who had never seen fish, and my, like, fish bud with me. So did you choose this show f- because of its music quality and its, its standard, the way that it stands up above the rest in 2.0? Or was there something specific and emotional to it? Why did you choose this? 228 is considered, it's just considered like the gold standard of an era that has gems, but is like not widely seen as a great era of fish. So I think... Uh, you know, I think 228 is like the what could have been because I think the February 03 tour was was amazing. And then I think as as you started to get towards Coventry, like I was at those April 04 Vegas shows that were easily the worst, you know, shows I've ever yeah. seen um, and and just unlistenable at certain points. Um, and, and I'm not a hater at all. I love every fish show. But like, as you started to get closer to Coventry with, again, rare exceptions. I loved Camden before that, you know, before Coventry. But like, 03 was like, they came back, they were hot, they like were firing on all cylinders. And this show is the gem of, of you know, 2.0 of an era that I thoroughly enjoyed. But at the same time, like, just isn't quite there. Like, I, I loved it for my experiences. Musically, I don't think it stacks up, you know, anywhere but anywhere close to either one or three. So, um, I don't know. I, I I think this is this is just a perfect show. So they open the first set with "Birds of a Feather," and when I saw that, I said, "There's no surprise there because they opened it or they debuted this song at the Island Tour, yeah. right? It was brand new." So I think that they connect it. This and Frankie says, I think, they kind of associate with the Nassau Coliseum because of those debuts in 98. And this version of Birds of a Feather, it's like they are locked in immediately. They are in the pocket. You could hear it on the audience recording that there's an awesome sing-along. Everyone is there for it. And this Birds of a Feather, it's just a perfect kickoff. It really is. And, you know, the other thing about this, the birds specifically is like 
the bittersweet motel scene where you know Trey's doing the where where like yeah. with his voice, you know that that like I feel like Birds of a Feather became such a like uh, I don't know like I always thought of it differently after that after seeing that stupid scene in the movie where I was like <laughs> oh I love this song now where <laughs> now uh, you know and I'm not nearly saying that's a universal experience but. I feel like it, it got put into that that camp of the character Zero, Prince Caspian, like where like you're just you, you know what you're getting. It's almost the same, um, you know, but it's just a high energy kind of sing along rocker. Everyone's good. Yeah, but around seven minutes of this one, it sounds like it could go type two very easily. Oh, yeah. yes. It sounds like they are ready to go. And then, you know, this is all my speculation, obviously, but it's almost like they realized, oh, wait, no, 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 no. This is the set opener. We can't go all the way out there yet. We have to reel it back in. Yeah, no 60-minute runaway gym openers. For right, right, not this time. And then they go into Destiny Unbound. Yes. And so I assume that you're going to want to dive into Destiny Unbound. I mean, I don't even know how to. I still don't think I can wrap my head around this. I was, as I've mentioned a hundred times already, I was in Buffalo. I was in college. And I did not fly home for this show. And I thought I was being reasonable. I thought, you know, I'm going to see them in Cincinnati in a week or so. Um, You know, I just came back from Christmas break. And I think it's, you know, I have classes. It's irresponsible to fly home. All of that went right out the window. And I kicked myself, literally, when I saw that they played Destiny Unbound on the set list. Holy shit. Like, oh, my God. I wrote down in my notes, the greatest thing to ever happen. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you should not try and undersell it at all. I think that's uh, <laughs> well. well know, it's a, a little, 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 a little low rent. Um, no, it, it it was. You know what is it? Since nineteen ninety one, seven hundred ninety. Yeah, seven hundred ninety six shows. Yeah, um, unbelievable. And you know, I think I think there, there's always those events where. 75,000 people say that they were at a 25,000 person yeah. event or yep. whatever. You know, it, it is this destiny moment is is the kind of thing where everybody wants to be there. Everybody wants to be there for that bust out. The concept of a bust out basically started with this destiny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I fully, 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 and, and I don't know whether or not anyone's asked, you know, Mike Fish, Page, or Trey this question. I fully am convinced that like the iPod is responsible for them busting out Destiny Unbound. And maybe that that answer is already on the record. But uh, you know, I think someone had an iPod with some old, you know, shows on it and someone said, Hey, why don't you listen to this Destiny Unbound? The thing about that Destiny, and I want to get to the crowd reaction in a second. Yeah, I was right about to ask you. Yeah, the thing about that Destiny that's important is that that is the best version of Destiny Unbound ever played. I would agree. No version since and no version prior is better than that version of Destiny Unbound, which which is why it's not just the bust out. It's nailing the fucking bust out. Absolutely. The thing is, you brought up, well, we brought up the taping before and you brought up the kind of the ritual of it and how it, um, how you kind of miss that. You don't use those words, but I know how you feel. And behind this bust out, I learned a lot about fish by reading, by finding whatever I could. You know, I read the fish compendium by Dean Budnick. 
Mm-hmm. And that was my go-to, the Farmer's Almanac. And the way that it was written about Destiny Unbound, it was almost as if the Holy Grail, it was like an Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like they found the Grail. And so my excitement, that's where it comes from. And when I saw it, it's like the impossible is now possible. And when I heard it, that jam where Trey has those descending guitar riffs or I'm my vocabulary is at a loss but there's the beginning of that jam and it's so in the pocket it's so smooth and it goes for I think about eight minutes It's it's just a stellar, stellar version of a song that, you know, again, going back to this being Long Island fish territory, you know, I do think that most people there had at least some understanding of the mythology of Destiny Unbound, you know, with, with I'm not saying, you know, that number is 100%, maybe that number is 80, maybe that number is 60 but I would say a majority of people there, you know, understood the myth of Destiny Unbound. You know, the audience tape that I used to listen to quite a bit, um, or I guess the audience, you know, digital or whatever the hell, um, you know, there, it is a slow build. You know, everyone wants to say that they picked it up on the first note. Once the vocals started, it sounds like, once Mike steps up to the microphone, that's when it really kicks in on the version that I was listening to on fish.in. Yeah, that's, I think, absolutely right. Um, You know, I think you might have needed the mic vocals. um, And then, you know, word spreads from there. I'm sure that, you know, the guy who stands next to you at the show and who yells things out uh, as as it happens, um, you know, that guy probably yelled out destiny and yeah. there are, you know, a thousand of those guys all <laughs> in the arena and, you know, it gets all the way around. And after destiny unbound, there's horn and bathtub gin and bathtub gin is, you know, the song of the year in 2003, or at least the song of the February, 2003 tour. Yeah. Uh, I looked up some stats. It was played nine times in the calendar year, 2003. And of those nine, Six of them have notable jams on fish.net on what they call the jam charts. And all six of those that are on the jam charts, they either approach or surpass the 20 minute mark. Wow. Good stats. This jam, because my, my standard for bathtub gin in this era was the one from Cincinnati that we both saw. Yes. But this one, I think, is underrated because the tweezer later in the show and the Destiny bust out kind of get the headlines here but this bathtub gin like the jam immediately leaps off trey uh kind of has a loop that starts at around seven minutes uh mike and fishman keep it steady and page at around eight minutes takes over on piano
And this is kind of a theme of 2003 bathtub gins. I love piano driven bathtub gins. This is, that's such a silly sentence, but I hearing it out loud makes me realize how ridiculous I sound, but it's true. I no, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, I think there were times in 2003 and 2004 where, you know, you, you left saying like I was keyed into page all night, mm-hmm. which is something I don't think I ever really said, you know, pre hiatus. I, I think fish progressed as a band, the more, the, the older they got. Um, and obviously they, they were all keyed into each other for years and, you know, they are the ultimate musicians, musicians and, and a band's band. Um, but you know, I think most people would walk out saying like, you know, the, a, a fish show was as good as Trey is that night. Um, yeah, as, as goes Trey, so goes fish is, exactly. the, is the way I've heard it. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that there were a lot of shows in 2003, 2004, where I walked out, you know, real, really being keyed into page, um, in ways that I just never, never felt before that. And, and I think you're hundred percent right. I think in gin, um, that was, that was very much the case to go back and, and be forced to listen to this one again, um, uh, because, you know, you're right. It gets out, overshadowed by the tweezer, um, you know, it, it was good to go back and listen to this one. I had not listened to it in a long time. Yeah. And speaking of Fishman, I'm glad you brought it up because about halfway through this, he has this beat. It's almost like a disco beat. It's like four on the floor. It, you know, and I'm quasi a fan of disco. I wouldn't even call myself a fan. It's like an insult to real fans, but it, it is like a club kind of music that he's four on the floor with the bass drum. And I enjoy it a little more than, kind of the abstract stuff that was going on before. But then Trey takes off right after Fishman sets this awesome beat with like this nasty funk rhythm guitar and Paige is right beneath him. toward the end, it kind of settles down. They almost run out of steam. And then Trey finds that bathtub gin melody again, which I thought was a good call. Like he knows when to end it here. Definitely. That's right. And, you know, again, uh, why I think this show in particular stands out to me and has such a special place in my heart is that like, I I do genuinely feel like a lot of jams in the 2.0 era just kind of ran out of steam. Agree. You know, in a way that that they don't necessarily anymore, and they definitely did not, you know, pre hiatus. But um, you know, I, I just it's it's proof to me that that you know, two twenty eight, like even on a night where like like that that jam may have run out of steam, but then Trey knew how to you know get get out of it and get into the next stuff and and go. Um, you yeah, whereas know. in two thousand four. He just kept kind of playing with the pedals and staring right. into the void. That's right. You know, these kind of ambient jams that weren't necessarily uh, what you wanted in that moment. So mm-hmm. after, after Bathtub Gin, 
There's Sleep, which I think is some of Tom Marshall's best lyrics. It's such a short song, but it's very, it's very charming. It's very cute as a song. It is. It's a cute song. And Get Back on the Train, which reaches its own peaks. If you didn't have Bathtub Gin or Destiny, this might have been the high point of the set. So I'll, I think this may be controversial. Let's hear it. We love controversy on this show. But uh, <laughs> that back on the train, even though it's type one, even though it's like not, you know, this, you know, crazy tweezer jam or, or gin jam or birds jam or anything. I remember that back on the train more than I remember any other song at that show besides Destiny. Uh, I've seen 16 back on the trains in my life. This is the only one I actually have like a visceral memory of. Like, what do you I think remember, that's about? I think I just remember it being. I, I'm look. Everyone loves a type two jam, and I love a type two jam. And give me the second set over the first set any day of the week. But having said that, like I love a great first set type one jam that just like is melodic and chirpy and you know, doesn't have to go anywhere to melt my face and isn't the hose. And, you know, it, it like any, anything that you go and see fish for, you know, usually happens in the type twos and the, you know, the memorable kind of, um, you know, second set jams. I'm a sucker for, for the, you know, eight to 11 minute first set type ones, uh, as much as anybody. And, and this, ba- and this back on the train, I remember saying as it was happening, like, this is the best version they've ever done of this. They will never do it again the same. And I'm sure they've beat it in, in subsequent years. But this is the only one of the 16 that I, I really, truly remember being in the moment of. And they've become experts at that in 3.0, where it's yes. usually like the fourth or fifth song in. Wolfman's Brother is a prime candidate where they'll do that, where they'll stick to the main theme of the song, but it's just they're masters at layering. They're masters at dynamics. So they'll just keep pushing it until they reach these gigantic mountaintop peaks. And you're just as thrilled as you would be with a 25-minute bathtub gin, for example, that we just talked about. And Fish.net agrees with you because on their jam chart, they call this get back on the train, quote, arguably the standard for which all type one back on the train should be measured against. No way. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, their their words, not mine. That is amazing. I yeah. I did I write that? No. So they play back, I'm sorry, Bouncing Around the Room, which is a great come down. It's a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. And they close with Walls of the Cave for the first set. Love the good, love the good 2.0 walls, I will say that. You want to talk about controversial statements. I'm not a huge fan of Walls of the Cave. I love the intro and I love the silent trees. Everything sure. in between them, I could just take it or leave it. And when I was listening to this version of it, 
I thought that it's a it's weirdly a little less powerful than the walls of the caves that we know today, which always still close the first set anyway. You know, I I think I just really enjoyed a lot of round room stuff that I yeah, never sure. You know, th- that's hindsight. Like I don't think I loved it in the moment, which is weird. Um, but like pebbles and marbles, waves. Uh, you know, waves for sure. Waves, I waves I loved in the moment. Yeah. Waves I would take every time. But pebbles and marbles, round room, um, forty six you know, days, forty six days, seven below for sure. Um, you I mean, know, when you say it now in twenty twenty, it sounds like a murderer's row. <laughs> totally, totally. And I think got short shrift at the time. Definitely, people were 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 super down on round room and you know i think in hindsight has been vindicated i i was one of those people i'll admit it or yeah i agree but walls of the cave it was immediately a a set closer immediately immediately and it's kept that spot i mean except at coventry when it opened the whole festival and i had my own feelings about that but that's for another episode yeah Uh, i I think but Someday someone's going to have to come on uh, your show and talk about Coventry, and I don't, I don't envy that person. That's a eight part series. <laughs> I, you can't complain about it when it closes this set because it's a very ready set closer. It does its job, and it sounds good. That's what right. else do you want? And then we open set two, and this could have been the whole episode, right? It opens with Tweezer, and this is what I think elevates this show from tour highlights or maybe era highlights to one of the best shows they've ever played. I think this tweezer is really what pushes it over the edge. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. You know, tweezer is one of those songs where, you know, you could see it at every show and it'd be different and you'd like it and it would be, you know, it would be incredible. It also means you get a tweet, you know, tweezer reprise. <laughs> That's true. It's an automatic yeah. pair. O- almost, almost automatic. And I'm sure most people would take that. I actually, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, getting back to tweezer, you know, you, you remember your tweezers. I feel like most people tweezer is one of the, I don't know, five songs in the Fish Pantheon that like you kind of remember almost every single one pretty clearly. Um, Tweezer and, if, and if you don't remember the music, you almost always remember how it made you feel. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. I don't mean musically even, you know, yeah. experientially. Um, I feel like, you know, you just remember the tweezers in a weird way. So, you know, feel free to disagree with me on that, whoever you are. Feel free to disagree with anything I've said tonight. Uh, well, it's way. fish fans. Of course they will. Yes. Of course we will. <laughs> yes. Um, I should have said up top that, like, I'm a person who tries to have no opinions. Um, but I'm going to put some out into the world tonight. Um, tweezer, that one, you know, I think picks up around the 11-minute mark, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe the 11-and-a-half-minute mark. What I wrote down, because the the song part of tweezer right up to the uncle Ebenezer and then the dissonance and the chaos. And then they start the jam. That's about five and a half minutes in and Trey starts directing traffic and it goes up to 10 minutes before they really move down to a more chilled out melody. He's just kind of driving the car and then they chill out and become more of that four piece that we're aware of that we all know and love. Yeah, absolutely. And then, 
And then I just love Trey starts to build something a little mean at 11, but then pulls back at like 1130. I think I wrote mm-hmm. that in my notes, but uh, yeah. I can't describe that musically. Neither can I. It's just this chord progression that it, it sounds uplifting. What I wrote down is I want to stay here forever. dense piece of music yes uh and then like from there they find that groove for you know the next kind of two minutes or so Mm -hmm. the the funny thing and and not to spoil that they they end up closing with harry hood but there's a point from like the 12 to 14 range maybe 12 to 15 range where it's almost it sounds like a hood jam it is kind of this melodic chirpiness um where trey gets into like a groove and everyone else gets to play where Mm -hmm. he's just locked in on a one, two to me, like every time I listen to that tweezer, it always reminds me just that middle section always reminds me of a hood. You know who is, I don't know if the word responsible is correct, but who kind of maybe low-key directs this is Fishman. Because mm-hmm. you're right, Trey has that you know melody. He's kind of locked in while everyone else is, I think, finding their place within each other. And then Fishman catches on and he increases the tempo at about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost becomes a new song. Yeah. And very refreshing. It is. And then it just doesn't let up for a while. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, relentless fish is, is good fish. Um, you know, I love, I love a, a second set jam where they have 12 jams inside a jam. Um, you know, and this felt like this, that way at the top of the jam. But I do feel like they, they you know, really just kind of, you know, they don't decompress as much. Um, at all, at all, at all really, yeah. in this one. Yes. Uh, and and uh, I think that is what I remember most about it is like just a relentless kind of 
coming out of the gate. First song of the second set. Here you go. Here's 25 minutes of relentless fish. Yeah, and they did this fairly recently. Was it 1230 of 2019? 1230. Right. You know, not just because it was 40 minutes. It's the best tweezer I've ever seen, but that is the best tweezer I've ever seen. I mean, that was uh, up until I, I would probably put 228 as my number one until this past one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and this one, it just, there's no thinking, there's no search in this one. It's almost like, it doesn't sound like it was pre-written, but it almost sounds like there were these movements that they were just kind of grabbing out of thin air and placing down here, almost like drag and drop, you That's know, right. <laughs> almost like you're, right. you know, you're teaching a kid how to use a computer and they know how to do it already. And then toward the end, there's this like arena rock power chords and my head, my ears told me sympathy for the devil. It sounds like it, even though there's this, you know, those chords are used a billion times in rock songs. And I'm sure that was a million miles from Trey, but that's where my, my ears were. And those are, it's just such a powerful thing that by the time you're at that point, about 25 minutes in, you forget where you started and you kind of don't care. From that to a second bust out, yeah, and and you know take that and and wind that jam down and go right into a soul shakedown party, the first ever in the United States. Is that uh, right? quite possibly because yeah, I know they played it in Europe in '97, yeah. and this was the first one since then. So I'll have to check that. I do a fact check at the end of every show. Yes, please do. So uh, I'll I'll write that back. down. Yeah, fact, check. Uh, pants on fire if it turns out to be not correct. <laughs> I think I remember someone saying to me at that show, like, first one ever in the States. That uh, guy knows. Yeah, I can yeah. tell by his voice, he knows. Yeah. And then they go right into David Bowie. And my first thought was, ah, back in the days when they were creative with the intro and the jam combined. That's right. And this one like gets chaotic and then it comes back and then I wrote down nasty and the whole tone of the jam changes. This was an extremely creative piece of music. Yes, definitely. The, you know, but again, I will say without prompting to study up before getting on this podcast with you, I don't know the last time I heard that Bowie, you know, it's there, there's, there's the tweezer, there's the gin, there's the birds, there's the back on the train, and even the hood. Um, yeah. You know, to, to, to get that Bowie sandwiched as a third song in the middle of a five-song all-killer, no-filler yeah. is amazing. And it's a good version of Bowie. It, it's second or third tier just for this show. Yes. But if they played this tomorrow, people would I be would- talking about it for the rest of the year. I would happily lap it up. Then they play Round Room, which is 
you know, definitely a rarity now. They, they've only played it six times to date. And I it's like this nice. song. It's yeah, just six to now oh. to 2020. And it passes. It's what passes for a Mike Gordon love song. <laughs> you know, it's just that weird. Uh, this one isn't quite all together. They didn't quite tighten these screws before they played it, but it's, I love the song anyway. And then they close with Harry Hood. They close the set with Hood. Was this, this, this is uh, a regular Hood. And I, what I mean by that is summer of three, they were doing some experimental hoods. And what might've done that though, also when you think about it, Trey mostly, his guitar tone was very different in 2.0 compared to what came before and what after. It was, I think, on Fantasy Tour, a lot, there's a lot of chatter about uh, the compressor. And I don't know anything about technicalities or anything about guitar pedals. That's well beyond me. But it, it does sound a little bit wilder. It sounds a little more uncontrolled, a bit sharper. And yeah. I think that's what might, when you talk about um, Harry Hood sounding different or a different twinge than before or after that may have something to do with it. But with I'll, this, I'll take anyone's word for it, but mine. The only thing I know right. about pedals is that Trey often stands too far from them when he wants to change them, and he has to kick his leg very far. Yeah, true. And what I thought about this version of Hood was it's good on its own. It's as an independent entity, it's a good, it's a well done performance. But I think that this one really benefits from what came before it because that epic three chord progression at the end that makes you feel so good, you know, that makes you feel the feels at the end of this. I think it has that epic feel to it, like the end of a big movie or something. And that's what this show sounded like. I don't know, like Lawrence of Arabia or something like this. Like, it made me feel like something had been accomplished here. It's a concert. Yeah. You know, I'm not that's losing sight of it. That's a way to put that. It really is. It is. I mean, every Fish show should build to the first set closer, to the second set closer, to the encore closer, right? You know, that's, that's what we all want to see. Fish is theater at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, it's all these things. And yet you still walk out of there feeling like a million bucks and a hundred degrees. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those magical shows. And, and, you know, that second set is, is unparalleled. Well, don't walk out yet because there's a three song encore. A three song encore. Who yeah. That with all that drama to close the set with Harry Hood and a 30 minute tweezer and soul shakedown party, the the encore had a lot of levity. It was very goofy. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's all the fun songs. It starts with Contact, Mexican Cousin, right after, which is another song from Round Room that they've dropped off, you know, in yes. addition to the title track. And it's only been played 12 times total. And when it, they've only played it once in Mexico. <laughs> That's insane. That is it's insane. like the perfect reason. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, how many Mexican Cousins have there been overall? 12. 12. Okay. I, I believe I've seen three. I know, I know that was my first. Um, and then I think summer, did they play it at Alpine? I've never seen it. So I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I, again, you know, back to my thing with, with round room, I have a soft spot for, I kind of did Mexican cousin Friday and Mexican cousin you know, we're, we're never the greatest songs. I'm fine that they're not in the repertoire, all that stuff. But like, I never had a problem with them on, to the degree that 
I feel like most people were like, ah, that's a bathroom song. I could go without a Friday encore for the rest of yeah. my fish seeing life. And then to close it all, you know, the the pair from what you said before, tweezer reprise, you can't get out that's without right. tweezer without it. And I wrote down, there's nowhere else to go. Shut the door on this motherfucker. Like it's, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> tweezer reprise. I feel like they could open and close every show with that. And I would be fine with it. It's, it's just such a high energy, quick kind of jam. You know, you're in and out in four minutes. You know, it's yep. just like, this is going to rock me beautifully. And this is as much as I need this. And let's go home. And I like, you can't help but smile. Do you remember how you felt walking out? I would love to tell you that I remember walking out, out of that show. I absolutely do not. I just uh, didn't walk out of there with any real clear memory other than thinking like we saw a landmark show tonight. So, you know, I'll leave you with this. You know, okay. I, I think, I think that fish is the greatest band in the world. And I think that they are the greatest band in the world at putting a full show together for 30 years. You know, other bands obviously know how to put full shows together and everyone's seen stop making sense in the last waltz. And, you know, mm -hmm. there are other great bands in the universe that knew how to do this. Um, James Brown and, you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, I think that this was a rare period for fish where they like didn't really, for me personally, again, my opinions are awful for me personally. <laughs> um, I felt like Oh three Oh four was more about like this show had an amazing jam. This show had an amazing jam, but like they never really put the full show together for me in 0304. Um, you know, start to finish the way they did pre hiatus. And then in 3.0 now, again, so I, I would even say Baker's doesn't on They're They're, you know, really putting shows together again. Um, you know, and it was always like, you know, Spack Piper 04, that was a great jam, but I don't remember the rest Name of it. Name another show. song from that show. Exactly. Waiting in the Velvet Sea. Yeah, there. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you really you actually should. set me up well for that one. Um, but um, yes, your point is 100% taken. That's the, it's the only song I can name. 22803 was a show that they put together from start to finish that absolutely did everything that fish promises they would do to you at all times. And um, I'm just thankful that I was there, you know, attendance bias. I'm thankful and, and blessed that I got to go to that show. Slade Somer, thank you so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, check out the recount. Is it the recount.com? It is the recount.com. We also have an app. You can go to at the recount on Twitter as well. And I'm at Slade on Twitter, S L A D E. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. Slade, thank you so much for being here and joining us on Attendance Bias today. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. You're awesome. And there you have it, my conversation with Slade Somer of The Recount about Fish's show on February 28th, 2003 at the Nassau Coliseum. After we were done with this recording, Slade even asked me, if I think that the people who would listen to the show would be a little put off because we got pretty deep into the weeds with references like type two jamming, type one, and other references that a casual fish fan may not quite understand. My answer is I don't really think there are many casual fish fans, but even as we went all over the place, even we got confused sometimes. So now it's time to correct ourselves and take a look at the fact check. 
Slade mentions that Fish played Axola Part 2 at his first show on June 28, 1995 at Jones Beach, but he hasn't heard it again since. In fact, the last time the band played Axola Part 2 was at New Year's 1995 at Madison Square Garden. That also means that when I said I haven't met anyone else who has seen Axola Part 2, I was wrong. And for the record, that Jones Beach show was on a Wednesday, so he was right about that. When talking about the 2.0 era, Slade references the Vegas 04 shows. The three shows were played on April 15th, 16th, and 17th, 2004. Those shows are infamous for the absence of Chris Carota at the lining board, several flubs by the band, an appearance by Jennifer Hartswick, and a cover of Jay-Z's Girls, Girls, Girls. Aside from the Coventry Festival, it is widely seen as one of the band's absolute lowest points. Slade also hypothesized that the bust-out of Destiny Unbound was inspired by someone playing an old recording of the song for the band on an iPod. While that may or may not be true, it was confirmed in a 2003 issue of Rolling Stone that the band's show later that year on July 29, 2003 at Starlake Amphitheater near Pittsburgh had a set list full of rarities that was made up at least partially from a random shuffle of fish songs that had not yet been played on that tour presented to them on an iPod. Slade suggests that this version of Soul Shakedown Party was the first to be played in the United States, and he is absolutely 100% correct. The Bob Marley song was played twice on the 1997 European tour and has been played nine times since this show at the Nassau Coliseum for a grand total of 12 performances to date. And toward the end of our discussion, it came up whether or not Fish has ever played Mexican Cousin at Alpine Valley. They have not. Thank you so much for joining me today on Attendance Bias. Again, my name is Brian Weinstein. Like, subscribe, and rate the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you again, and I'll see you next time.